HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Video Network. We are a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we are celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we are just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this trip through culinary history. And today's journey is a bit of recent culinary history in Ireland. It was 30 years ago this month that the acclaimed cooking series Simply Delicious with Darina Allen debuted on Ireland's TV network and catapulted the chef and cooking instructor to world culinary fame. In addition to being a beloved food personality, Darina Allen is Ireland's best-known food ambassador, tirelessly campaigning for the quality ingredients and local produce upon which her recipes are based in her 17 books. It's the philosophy that she teaches to people around the world who flock to her classes at the renowned Ballymaloo Cookery School in Shanagary, County Cork. In celebration of the TV cooking show's anniversary, she and her publishers, Kyle Books, have come out with her latest book called Simply Delicious, the classic collection. 100 Timeless, Tried, and Tested Recipes, released just in time for St. Patrick's Day. Earlier this week, Darina and I had a wonderful conversation following a cooking demonstration and luncheon for her book, hosted by Tourism Ireland, and I invite you to listen. Darina, welcome to the show. It is such a pleasure to see you once again. You've been on the show a couple of times before, but this is a very auspicious time because... 30 years ago this week, you aired your very first cooking show, which was called... Simply Delicious. Simply Delicious. <laughs> My goodness, 30 years, really. Yes. I, hadn't, I hadn't registered that. Thank you for reminding and me. And time flies, right? Big celebration. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 30 years. Tell me a little bit about what... You know, what you feel has transpired in 30 years. What was the cooking scene like that? I mean, there were very few cooking shows on television. No wonder you're called the Julia Child of Irish <laughs> television. I mean, you know, you and Julia. I mean, it was 
you know, there, the field was not as cluttered as it is, not cluttered, but busy well, as it is. Well, so. absolutely. And there, were, there was no such thing as celebrity chefs then, really. No. I mean, I think the reason why I was asked uh, to do a series on Irish television was because uh, they didn't have any Irish person on uh, Irish television at that time. Monica Sheridan had been before me, and uh, then there was a sort of gap. So, um, And they uh, contacted me and uh, asked whether I would do first a pilot, and then they must have thought there was some kind of potential there. And then I, they asked me to do a series. And what on earth would it be called? And I kept saying, as I tried to push more and more into each programme, oh, we must do that, it's simply delicious. And eventually my uh, <laughs> producer said, well, look, let's just call it that. And in a way, my food has always been very simple. I take lovely fresh ingredients that are in season at the time, and this was indeed 30 something years ago and just cook them simply so that they taste delicious so when people sit down at the table they go oh wow this is tastes really good and then the other thing that was really important to me always was um of course there was a book with each series simply delicious and uh, that the recipes were really well tested so that when people you know did, did the when they saw it on television and then went into the kitchen to reproduce it it really did turn out brilliantly for them. You know, it's interesting, a few of us uh, sitting at the luncheon that yes. um, you were so graciously doing a demonstration for and, and the Irish Tourism Board hosting, that was the discussion we had during our lunch was all those of us involved in the food world and food yes. writing was how often it, the frustration of getting recipes that have never been tested. And yeah. That's that's very important. Yeah, it's well really important. And I just feel as a cookery writer and a food writer that I really have a responsibility to people, particularly nowadays when a lot of people actually don't cook and haven't got the fundamentals and they pick up the courage to go out and get the ingredients and then to make a dish. And it's just so not fair when a recipe is not properly tested so that then they think they've got it wrong and that they can't. Well, can't cook. A lot of the time when people say to me, I can't cook, and I say, well, have you got a recipe book that actually works, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's a, that, that's a real help. Because it turns people off to think, well, I can't cook. And it probably often isn't them. It's just the recipe. Well, now your new book is, is basically a, a celebration of that 30 years because... It's, what do you call it? The Simply it's, Delicious. It's called Simply Delicious, 100 Classic Recipes. Classic Recipes. Yeah, and it was really difficult to pick out just 100 recipes from the, I think, nine Simply Delicious little paperbacks that I did. Uh, but, you see, they've been out of print, those little paperbacks, for about... 10 or 15, 10 years anywhere, 12 years. And almost hardly a week went by without somebody contacting me and saying, well, look, where can I get a copy of Simply Delicious Food for Family and Friends or Simply Delicious Christmas or Simply Delicious Fish or something? And I'd say, well, look, you'll have to look in a charity shop or something. <laughs> and because people would say, look, I lent my copy to my friend and she never gave it back to me or blah, 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 something like that. And they say, well, we're looking for one for our son or daughter. I want to give it as a present. And then so my publishers, Octopus um, and I, Kyle Books, they uh, said, well, look, we should really do a reprint and just pick a hundred favorites. And so, how in the world? Sorry, did, how in the world did you pick? 
just 100 recipes out of all the... Because the show ran for how long? How long did the show run? Well, the, there were nine series, nine basically. Nine series that lasted over... Uh, well, uh, so there were nine series. And uh, so it was really tough to pick just 100 recipes. And we may even do a sequel to this because when it... You see, there was such a nostalgic thing about the Simply Delicious books. And when it was republished for this last Christmas in Ireland, people just flocked into the shops to get a, a copy again. And uh, so because these... You know, Simply Delicious, for many people in Ireland, is what memories are made of. It's, right. uh, you know, it really is. Well, in looking through this book um, that you that has just come out, yeah. the Simply Delicious, the 100 recipes that you've chosen, yeah. the classics, Yes, um, they are, many people may say, well, gee, this is interesting. It's sort of like very simple, classic home yeah. cooking. My food has always been simple and sort of pe- what people might call nowadays pareback food, but it's a sort of p- food that people want to eat every day and that they want to, and that indeed they can serve to their family and to friends when they come to dinner and share with them again. So the in, uh, there was one lovely thing about this. The whole book was re-photographed again, and I did some little tweaks to the recipes to make them a little bit more contemporary and so on. But basically the food, the home economist and the food stylist and the photographer who were photographing the book, you know, they do books all the time and so on but they said to me look we couldn't get over how well these recipes have stood the test of time because they couldn't wasn't that a compliment isn't that nice and they kept saying well we couldn't wait to photograph them to eat them afterward eat the dishes afterwards (laughs) and it's not always their experience you know so that was really nice to discover that the recipes are still so relevant and so much loved and it's all about getting starting off with really good produce it's just real food i mean this is what people are still craving well you yeah, yeah. But, and, and you were you've always been a proponent of quality ingredients and local whenever available. yes and oh yes movement, yes right? and also actually really encouraging people you know in a way you're asking about what's happened in those 30 years i mean look at what's happened as a, you know we have handed over practically responsibility total responsibility for the food we eat to the supermarkets and the multinational mm. food companies i mean what are we like I mean, how do we expect them to have our best interests at heart? It's not their responsibility. You know, their responsibility is their shareholders. So I keep saying to people, look, take back control over the food you're eating again. Really think about what you're putting into that uh, basket when you're shopping and when you're um, and what you're going to feed to your family and and so on. And basically. You know, the a lot of... And I say to people, look, how, where do you live? I don't care whether you live in the country or in a city. Try to grow something again. You know, find, discover the magic of growing a little of your own food. Even with all you need to grow food is to have a, a some kind of container. It could be a recycled box or a basket or something. You need some soil. You need a seed. You need some water. You need light. And you need a bit of patience. And you could easily grow all your salad leaves and radishes and little spring onions. Herbs. On, or herbs on your windowsill. And at least you know what's not in it. And you see, I was brought up, I'm the eldest of nine children, a typical Irish family. And um, we were, my mother loved to cook. And it was her way of, you know, she, mummy knew how important it was that cooking was for our health, apart from anything else. Because mm-hmm. she, she knew that our food should be our medicine because it was almost pre I'm 70 years of age now it was almost pre-antibiotics not quite but people knew the importance of feeding children well and and, and of really uh, wholesome nourishing food and she used to say look if you don't put the money into the food on the table you'll give it to the doctor or the chemist and nowadays people 
you know, say to me, well, it's all very fine for you, you know, when I advocate, for goodness sake, try and get some chemical-free food or organic food. And people's eyes roll sometimes and they think that, well, it's all right for me because they perception is they think I can afford it. But I say, look, it's not about affording it. It's uh, For some people it is, of course, but for many people it's not about affording it. It's about priorities. Well, and education. Yeah, and yeah. education. Yeah. And, you know, often I say to people, well, look, okay, so you tell me you can't spend another $50 on, on getting better quality produce or fresher produce. And I say, well, look, how much did you spend on those nails last week? How much did you spend on the hair, on, on you know, magazines or whatever? And then we all realise that we, we all make decisions about what we're going to spend our time and our money on. And food, unfortunately, is a long way down the list of priorities a lot of the time. Unfortunately. And, and, you know, yeah. I thought it was just in America, but you mean... Oh, no, I'm afraid, yeah. But also, and I often say to people, OK, how much did you spend on supplements in the last month? People are prepared to fork out $15, $20 on a supplement or something, and it could be coming from their food. That's right. uh, so in a way, uh, and food is such... A, a, a wonderful thing to you know unite families to somebody in the house ought to be able to cook because people get fed up of coming home to the smell of a you know reheated something in a microwave I mean how wonderful is it to come home even if it's only occasionally to the smell of fresh bread wafting out of the oven or a very simple little stew or something that everybody can sit down around the table to that's what memories are made of and I know I sound like an ancient granny but look it hasn't changed <laughs> You don't. You yeah. don't. I mean, I think yeah. it's. I think you sound to me like the people who are, you know, preaching this. The new, the new generation. Yeah. It's sort of a return to that. Return way, to it. A yeah. Return to that way yes. of eating and that way of thinking about our food. Exactly. There's a craving now, to this, reconnect with how food is produced. That's right. And you are not a newcomer to this by any means. And you, your show, okay, your television show, you became your, the famous personality that you are. And <laughs> Can you, you are, imagine? A celebrity and, chef. <laughs> and you are. Um, prior to that, about 20 years prior to that, you came to County Cork to, to cook. Yes. Um, and met your husband at the time. Yes. And, and, and still my husband. And still your husband. I mean, you know, yes. that's when All, you met your husband. Almost 50 years. <laughs> kind of a record. Well, but, and you met a woman who really changed your life. Life, exactly. Myrtle Allen, who uh, is now my <laughs> mother-in-law and sadly so, went to yeah. her a very deserving award. Uh, at 96 years of age, she slipped quietly away uh, at the end of last year and left yes. us such a legacy Andy. and of course she reinforced when I came to Ballymaloe uh, which is Ballymaloe House which is down on the south coast of Ireland east of Cork in the middle of a 400 acre farm very close to the sea and but when I came to Ballymaloe Myrtle who had opened a restaurant in, in their own great big country house uh, in uh, the country. In This was in 1964 when, you know, restaurants were in cities and towns. I mean, it was absolutely considered to be some kind of crazy to open a restaurant out in the country, miles away from a central population. And uh, but they had a big house. And, uh, I mean, now there are lots of country house hotels and restaurants, but, but this was the first one in the British Isles at that time. And she had never had a cooking class in her life. And she just served the kind of food to her guests that she served to her family and friends and you know as a housewife and that is not a derogatory term as far as I'm concerned and she cooked uh, you know if there were lovely fresh cabbages or mackerel or um, suede turnips or uh, whatever happened to be in season in the garden and on the farm 
That's what she put on the table because it was at the best and, and freshest at that time. And uh, then what she couldn't source, what she had herself on the farm, she you know, uh, got local farmers or uh, their wives to rear chickens and ducks and geese for her to produce more berries, whatever. So as a result, we've had this incredible network of small producers that we at Ballymaloo House still, and now the cooking school, which I started uh, in, on a second farm, uh, the cooking school, Ballymaloo Cooking School, is in the middle of a 100-acre organic farm about two miles from Ballymaloo, even closer to the sea. And uh, so we still have this amazing network of small producers. And actually in Ireland, I mean, the whole food scene has changed so incredibly in Ireland in the last 30 or 35 years. Yes. From when, you started From when I started show. originally, okay. yes. And yes, and of course we have marvellous... Well, probably the most exciting thing is the emergence of this artisan food sector and a specialist food sector. So, so many small artisan producers passionate about what they're doing, making a wonderful cheese or smoking fish or making wonderful jams or preserves. Or uh, it could be now, of course, there's a whole fermentation thing coming up as well. So, And it's their whole livelihood. And then there's the farmer's markets as well. Actually, of all the things that I've done, I think the thing I'm most proud of is having restarted the market system, the farmer's markets in Ireland. After I came over here, actually, to San Francisco and saw the first farmer's market, it wasn't even in the Ferry Plaza building at that stage. It was in a parking lot. And I was so excited about it. I mean, I'd seen markets in Europe, of course, but these were different kinds of markets. These were professional people who had moved from the East Coast to the West Coast and in California and started to grow and produce things and then sell them at a farmer's market. And at that time in Ireland, um, we there was it was a time of great change as well uh, in the, I suppose, mid 80s at that stage and uh, basically we'd gone over a lot of the super the supermarkets had come on stream uh, a lot of them gone over to a central distribution system so many of the farmers and food producers who used to sell directly to the local shops suddenly found themselves the, the, the local shops a lot of them were owned by supermarkets and suddenly the local shops would not buy the local produce yeah. I mean hello yeah. what was that about it's uh, all about distribution they had, yes they had, they had to be efficient yeah. so anyway I, suddenly local people couldn't get local food um, a big, and because these and so suddenly here I was standing in this farmer's market in San Francisco and it was like a light bulb moment I suddenly thought if I could restart the, farmer, the markets in Ireland then local people could the local people who wanted local food could contact, get in contact and buy directly from the farmers who were selling it. And so I went back to Ireland the following year. I started the first farmer's market in the Cool King Cork. And of all the things I've done, that's the thing I'm most proud of. And because many farmers would not be still on the land if it wasn't for the oh, farmer's markets. Right. Yeah. So they, originally it was people who were saying, are you crazy? I was on television at the time. And, you know, in Ireland, because of our history, the idea of selling off a stall on the side of the street was considered to be anathema. People thought you'd want to be on your knees. And then suddenly when I stood behind my stall myself and encouraged the local farmers and producers and fishermen basically became the coolest thing and so the farmers markets are very exciting and they're real farmers markets and, but how was the initial reception when you came back with the idea there was a lot of the, hey who was the toughest to convince the real farmers because well, a lot of those had they you know the, the idea of actually setting up a store on the side of the street and selling the produce, they really felt you'd want to be on your knees to do that. So the only reason 
why it really worked was because I was on television at the time and I was prepared to stand behind a stall and sell produce from our own farm and say, look how beautiful and fresh this is and look at what Frank Heatherman, the lovely smoked fish he has and look at what, um, you know, Caroline Robinson has those beautiful vegetables and it became super cool. And a lot of the young people, including Clodagh McKenna, uh, who's now, uh, uh, you know, doing so brilliantly a pastor. And a TV star as well. And a TV star (laughs) and an alumni of the Valley Cookie School. Yes, but basically she started off uh, in the Middleton Farmers Market. She wanted a stall in this, and the Middleton Farmers Market was oversubscribed. So I made a little space for Clodagh on the end of my stall for her to sell her chicken liver patty. And that's where she started her career. So and and so many wonderful stories. Yes, and she then went on to do a television series about the farm. Markets and wrote a book and on its goes, you know. That's that's really yeah. wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful experience. And the fact that you use your agency as as a star <laughs> to make these things happen, and I all, think that was that was really well. And the important. other thing, of course, that it did with when I started the Ballymena Cookery School, it, it literally students because the school is in the middle of an organic farm and we have our own greenhouses and we have chickens and ducks and geese and a micro dairy and all that sort of thing. Students literally came from all over the world, again, because they could see how food is produced from the farm to the fork. And I got the opportunity to pass on the skills. I love to pass on, uh, to teach people how to cook. And I got the opportunity to pass on the skills that I had learned from my own mother and from Myrtle, because they... Um, reinforced uh, when I came to Balmaloo from hotel school uh, Myrt- uh, Myrtle reinforced my mother's values around food and uh, and freshness and all Just of that. Getting your hands a little dirty in the Ex- dough. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so now literally students, I mean we're at the moment at the cooking school there's a three month certificate course going on there at the moment and we have 11 nationalities and that's not unusual and we're in a Amazing. very rural part of Ireland and we also do days and weekends and weeks and more recently one of the courses I'm most proud of is a a six-week sustainable food production course and that's we use all the resources of the farm and the gardens and the greenhouses and we have amazing speakers Uh, about a third is very inspirational speaker from all over the world including Patrick Holden who was the head of the Soil Association and now Sustainable Food Trust and then we have a third literally putting their hands in the soil, starting with a soil scientist and sowing seeds and learning how to look after animals and all that thing. And then a third in the kitchen, cooking the food, preserving, knowing how to use up a glut and zero waste and all that. So that's one of the the things I'm most proud of. But then if people only have a day or or a... an afternoon if you're in there if you're over in Ireland and you have you're in our area you can we have afternoon cookery demonstrations literally every afternoon so you can have a look at the website cookingisfun.ie and you can see what's on in that afternoon and drop in and well so that yeah. so the bad rap that Irish food had for yeah. so long in other countries yes. in, in America yes is not deserved, probably came from well, it, poor relatives who yeah. immigrated over to America and yeah. didn't have the resources, didn't have the food, yeah. didn't have the education or the knowledge. Yes. But you're telling me that this was it was always natural. They were always cooking yes. products from the farm. Our food was very simple, uh, but it was wholesome and, 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 and nourishing and and... and and delicious, and you know, we had people didn't have a very wide variety of foods. You know, they would have had bacon and cabbage and parsley sauce and lots of the soda breads and so on. Right. Well, we're going to talk about some of those dishes in just a moment after we take a quick break.
Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sirchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Akiko Katayama, and I'm the host of Japan Needs here on HRN. By interviewing fascinating personalities in Japanese culinary culture, I try to demystify Japanese cuisine. My guests have included sake brewers, tea experts, Japanese whiskey experts, and sushi chefs. You can find Japan Needs whenever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Well, in your new book, Darina, in the book Simply Delicious, the 100, oh, the classic collection, it's just called the classic collection, yeah, but there are 100 recipes. Yes, classes. that's right. What do you, I mean, was there one uh, defining feature that made a particular recipe a classic? Well, it's, it was tough because, you see, we had to pick just 100 recipes from uh. nine different books. <laughs> and what I think, in a way, I chose were the the recipes that have mostly stood the test of time or that were sort of recipes that were absolutely associated with me or with Ballymaloo House. And there are things like the traditional salad, uh, you know. Well, uh, let, yeah, let, me, let yeah. me pinpoint a few. Now, first yes. of all, you have to, you have to clarify for me. Ballycotton... Is that what is that the farm? Bally, no, Ballycotton is a little fishing village about two miles uh, from us, and it's okay. the little where the, all of our fresh fish comes from that little harbour there. Okay, but Ballymaloo is your whole Ballymaloo, farm. Ballymaloo, Ballymaloo is the name of the the house and the farm um, where the original Ballymaloo House restaurant was set, and then okay. uh, the cookie school also carries the name Ballymaloo. And Ballymaloo actually, uh, the name means they, these are very old names. It means the town's land of sweet honey, because all of those names would have, Irish names, yeah, would have uh, entered into the language about 2,000 years ago and would always have reflected some sort of attribute of the area. So obviously... Sweet honey. Yeah, so mal is uh, honey and uh, lua is soft or sweet. So uh, usually um, it it would have meant that there was particularly good honey came from that area. Oh, that's interesting. We did actually, you've been on um, A Taste of the Past a couple of different times Mm -hmm. and we did quite a talk about the the cookery school and it was... that didn't entice a lot of people to go, I don't know what would. But <laughs> now with this book, it's kind of taking a step back because you did have some more progressive dishes in, in a lot of your other books. I mean, mm. you had, what is it, 17 books Seven. already? This is <laughs> I know. I'm a serial offender. Yeah, you, got a lot of, you got a lot of recipes. <laughs> yes. Um, but these are, so this is a, a pared down version of your recipes, of your, yes. of your repertoire yes. and of the ingredients. One couple of things, you said the traditional salad. You said if, this is a salad that people would have um, in the evening, and, yes. and there was something particular about it. Right, you mentioned, tell me about the traditional well, Irish salad. Basically, uh, if you kind of went to visit your 
uh, your, your, your relatives uh, on a Sunday evening. You might have, uh, in the summer, you might have uh, what they would call salad. And that would be just with, with uh, what you would call over here Boston bib lettuce, which was the only lettuce we had years ago, some tomato, uh, hard-boiled egg, some little spring onions or, or scallions, uh, some pickled beetroot. Uh, and then with the dressing pre-mayonnaise days, which is a dressing which was made uh, with uh, a hard-boiled egg yolk, um, you'd sieve the hard-boiled egg yolk, chop up the white, and then you'd add in some soft dark brown sugar, which we used to call Barbados sugar, and then a brown malt vinegar and a little salt, and then cream, because... That was your fat. Uh, this, cream, yeah, right? cream, and it made the most delicious dressing, it actually. It sounded delicious. Yeah. It looked, I mean, it looked yeah. like almost like a Russian dressing to me in the picture. Yeah. But the description of the ingredients, I went, hmm, mm. a whole different It is flavor. so good. Actually, at, the, in King, the girls are actually going to serve that at, at King uh, at, Restaurant, at King restaurant on King Street. Yeah. They're doing a lunch for, uh, and with this book tomorrow. And that was one of the things they chose. But I've actually brought the brown mole vinegar over from Ireland. I'm sure you can get it here. Yes. But that's what the, the brown mole vinegar and the soft dark brown sugar are the key there. But you see, this was pre on of oil days in Ireland and it makes the most delicious dressing so that was one thing which is definitely a classic and then if you you know if you were visiting your relatives they might put a couple of slices of the cold, leftover cold meat from their Sunday lunch with right. it but we're, we serve it on its own as a starter uh, in Ballymaloo and people and anybody, absolutely love it and anyone else listening to the ingredient yeah. list would yeah. say ah, well I've got all those things in my cabinet exactly and and this is the, this is another thing thing about my recipes particularly in this book uh, they're made with ingredients that people will have you know but and, but, but, but good quality one, yeah exactly and then you you see fresh. we only we would only make that in the summer when the tomatoes were full of flavor and mm. the eggs where the hens were all running around outside so you beautiful eggs and then you'd lovely young beetroot uh, that you cooked in little little wispy spring onions you know and that good um, uh, we, what we call butter um, head lettuce, but you call Boston bib. Right. Yeah. Right. Which, when I was a child, was the only thing I knew lettuce was. That's what it was. Boston bib. That was. Yes, it. exactly. Oh. <laughs> there was. There weren't ten different yes. uh, varieties like there are from now. The supermarket. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Um, there was another dish that caught my attention, of course, and I had to look a little. Not knowing Ireland, I had to look a little bit in the background to find out what the provenance of yes. this dish was. Dingle pie. Oh, yes. Dingle well, you know, pie. Dingle is in Kerry. Okay. And it's, this is very interesting, actually, because this could even have been a West Cork pie. Either. But basically, my mother, no Myrtle Allen, for, I suppose, about 25 years ago, suddenly realised that a lot of our traditional, um, in inverted commas, dishes, a lot of them were not written down, the sort of things that people would have done at home. And uh, the a lot of the older people who were cooking in that way, this was from, uh, the, you know, uh, 50s and early 60s, were actually you know, quite old and passing on. So she thought there's a real urgency now in recording these uh, recipes. And so the, and, uh, uh, because there, of course they, uh, there were no measurements for a lot of them. So she started, she used to write for the Irish uh, Farmers Journal, an Irish farming newspaper. So she started a competition in the, in the newspaper for people to send in their memories or their recipes or just descriptions, even if they didn't have, um, they didn't have measurements of particular dish. And every, uh, 
um, week she would give a, a prize and a runner-up, you know, and it wasn't about the prize or the prize money, which was, I think, a pound if you were got if you won first prize <laughs> and 25 shillings. Uh, exactly. Oh, my goodness, you were printed in the in the Farmer's Journal. And that was So she got an incredible collection of recipes in around the country, and a lot of them were the sort of things you'd expect, the cold cannons, the champs, the potato dishes, you know, some Irish stews, that kind of thing, and the soda breads and the apple tarts, all that. But then this woman from um, Kerry sent in a recipe that she de- described that her grandfather, uh, her grandmother would make for her grandfather, and he would uh, take it in his pocket, the deep pockets of his heavy coat, uh, it, when he was going up, walking up the mountains to look after the sheep. And it was quite different to anything else. And uh, so it was made, the pastry was made, uh, it was lamb, of course, or, or mutton, actually, in fact. And uh, she said the pastry was made with the mutton fat and flour and, uh, and salt and so on. A and sturdy pastry a, a sturdy pastry case. And then that the chopped up... Um, uh, chopped up lamb and onion and so on, and pepper and salt, and sometimes a bit of carrot or something, but often not. Anyway, she described this pie, and Myrtle was intrigued by this because she hadn't found anything else like it that had come in. So we made it in the Bamloo kitchen, and uh, it was very interesting, as you quite clearly said, uh, the pastry was fairly rib-sticking, but good <laughs> and robust. So Myrtle decided we'd change the, the shortening there, we put butter in, and then actually uh, we added a little cumin to to the um, which is was definitely not Irish, but right. it's really uh, you know it's sort trade of, roots uh, in the exactly, <laughs> and uh, then made this pie, which of course we now call dingle pie. But the interesting thing was, why was it in that area? And I remember years later sort of idly listening to a radio program in the background when I was doing something and suddenly I heard them saying um, that the, about the, the tin mines down on, around West Cork and then into Kerry where the Cornish miners had come over to mine the tin uh, and they'd shown the local people how to mine the tin in the area. And I, suddenly I thought, well, maybe that's the connection because, yeah. you know, the Cornish pasties are right. such a much-loved uh, um, uh, Cornish food and I can imagine how maybe a chap, a miner who came over might have described to his landlady or his girlfriend how to make these kind of pies and that and then perhaps it, it developed in that area yeah. so I mean, yeah. we, and here in america we call them hand pies hand pies exactly because you can hold them yeah hold, hold them in your hand, hand. And, right. and then actually there's another variation of it in this stool uh, another part of Kerry where they where that was this is quite interesting mary Keane, who was the wife of jb Keane, the uh, the playwright who died a number of years ago but she told me about these listole pies because there are these listole races the horse races and um, that were very famous and of course the the men would all go off to the races and, you know, come home sozzled, drunk, <laughs> and the wife was, was supposed to have something for them to eat when they came home. So anyway, they, their wives then felt very hard done by that they couldn't get to the races because they had to cook. So they all started to make these mutton pies, which they made a couple of days ahead of time, and then they would make broth from the bones of the, of the mutton, of the, la, of the sheep, and then when they came home from the races, they'd have these pies made with this robust pastry, and then they would heat 
heat up the broth and put the pie into a deep sort of soup, wide soup bowl, pour broth over it, oh. uh, that, you know, the mutton broth over it, and then the men would come in and eat these pies, so and nice, everybody nice was happy. Soggy, mushy stew. <laughs> Perfect. Really yeah. just Red what you chicken. needed <laughs> after a, a day of liquid socializing, yes. you know. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and all originating from the town of Dingle. All, yes, mm-hmm. and that was the Listole one, actually, which, of course, yeah. this is all Kerry, still Kerry, and then Dingle pies the are, pies yeah, yes. Um, another one that caught my, another recipe that caught my eye, but great stories. I mean, the stories are just... I know. I, see, I think you should have included all the stories in the book as well. I know. Well, beautiful. it's always interesting to think how an, a, a recipe originated in a particular place. And of course, right. with a lot of the traditional dishes, there really is a story behind it. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, the Ballycotton fish pie. Oh, yes. Well, of course, Ballycotton is the little fishing village about two miles from the Ballymaloo Cookery School. And uh, there is a little harbour. It's a little small fishing village with just one street and the little boats go out and fish some day boats but now some of the boats go further out and of course we are so lucky we get an incredible variety of fish both flat fish and round fish and some shellfish we get crab and and lobster and things like that but and we get periwinkles off the strand that we pick and forage on the strand so um that fish pie was just a lovely simple fish pie almost like with a bechamel sauce and the fish folded into it and uh, then with a lovely uh, potato topping on top yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, it was beautiful. Oh, the picture I mean, of it is, everybody is beautiful. Everybody loves yeah. fish pie, don't they? That's a really comforting yeah. food, too. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, and creamy. And, and, and creamy and yeah. very creamy, yeah. which brings me back to something else. Yeah. I was looking at, of course, the book begins with soups, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. And I said, oh, yes, look at the wonderful yeah. green soup. Yeah. And then the, the potato and leeks. Yeah. Oh, of course, that's yeah. very Irish. I'd, yeah. And then I started reading... Recipe after recipe, yeah. and every soup had not... I said, well, yes, of course, some potatoes to yes. thicken it up a bit. Well, not just potatoes to yes. thicken it up. There's also some cream, yes. and there's also some yes. butter. Every yeah. recipe... Yes. replete with cream and potatoes but, yes. and butter. But, uh, I mean, yeah. these are these are meals in a bowl. Absolutely. And, you know, Ballymaloo House has always been famous for its soups, actually. And a lot of these soups are made on... A, a formula, a cup of chopped onion, a cup of chopped potato, three cups of chopped vegetables, any kind of chopped vegetables of choice, or it could be pea beans or courgettes, it could be just carrot and parsnip, or it could be just carrot as well as potato and onion. So, and then five cups of stock, and then we always, so you cook them together, and we just uh, we just add usually a little cream uh, at the end, just to give you that wonderful silkiness. And you can have it, of course. You don't have to puree the soups. You can have them with the chunks in it or whatever. But basically, cream... You know, in Ireland, our cream and our butter is wonderful. Well, and there you yeah. and you particularly be, being in County Cork, yes, and that's the dairy capital. Capital, right? exactly. Yeah. And uh, basically, are uh, we? You know, we have we're very favoured by nature in Ireland because we can grow grass like practically nowhere else in the world. We're an island nation, of course, so we have all that coastline with very good wonderful fish and shellfish and basically a lot of our dairy products and our meat, beef, our beef and our lamb are in 
incredibly good quality. Actually, in Ireland for a long time, we've kind of taken that for granted. But now we realise that there is a difference in what we produce and what you can buy in other countries. Yeah, all this, all this yeah. talk about the grazing land and having yes. you know, the animals graze outdoors. Yes, and of course the, the cows are grass-fed and, and the beef is, to a great extent, also grass-fed for most of the year. Usually the animals go in for a short time in the winter for animal welfare reasons. But, um, but what did I want to say about that? Oh, yes, but also sometimes... You know, for the last, what is it, four decades, we've been told that uh, cream and butter and fat and everything is bad for us. I mean, what's that about? There was never a jot of proper research to actually link, mm-hmm. um, you know, fat to cardiovascular disease. And I hope that people realise that now, because I think in a way it's incredibly important for people to realise there are only two vitamins that are water-soluble, that's B and C. All the rest of them are fat-soluble. So unless we have a little fat, it could be butter or olive oil or something, with the rest of our food, we can't absorb all the nutrients that's from the rest of our food. such an important yeah. lesson. It, know, yeah, incredibly important for people to know, because basically the, that whole low-fat nonsense was such a myth and it meant that a lot of people who were on low fat diets cut out you know they they found that they were soon uh, suffering from malnutrition well muscle wasting muscle wasting wasting. I mean and I mean they were that was all the our governments, our Department of Health, our doctors, our nutritionists, everybody kept on repeating the same old nonsense until somebody decided to do a meta-analysis of all the research, discovered there wasn't a jot of... In fact, it was actually injurious to our health. So whatever happens, people should never buy anything (laughs) low-fat or anything you just want, whole, real food. That's all you need. And that whole edict of, you know... Everything in moderation. Everything in moderation and real, just real food. And there's no doubt about it, we need to cut all the ultra-processed stuff out of our diets. It's killing us, and I'm not using that word lightly. We just need real food. But it's hard for a lot of people to actually source that kind of food now. Well, unless they have a very good farmer's market by them, or else unless they start to grow something on their their balcony themselves and so on. Yeah. Well, it's no wonder that your television (laughs) series just flew off the charts. It, it became so <laughs> oh, popular. And those little pamphlet books that went along with the with the cooking series. With the Simply Delicious at series. At that time, the Simply Delicious series, at that time, they were the highest, best-selling cookbooks ever in print in <laughs> Ireland before, it made, right? Can you imagine? It was a cookbook that made Irish publishing history. I mean, it was <laughs> incredible. I mean, it was a huge surprise to me and indeed to the RTE and to the publishers. Uh, that, As uh, the publisher said, uh, I remember at one stage, she said, my God, this book is selling in telephone numbers. And, uh, you know, they actually were... the. Now, the publishers were not ready for it because they hadn't, I think they published 25,000 copies or something to start with, which was a huge print run, but they ran out of uh, of um, books literally in a couple of weeks and <laughs> uh, there was a paper, anyway, they got them in print so again. So multiple but, printings uh, later. <laughs> yeah, but, but actually it was interesting. Again, it's back to the fact that, you know, oftentimes people would say to me when they saw the television Series, they would say, I felt like when I watched you doing it, I felt like jumping up out of my chair and running straight into the kitchen to do it. And it was very interesting because RTE, our, our national television, television station, had, well, they were hoping it would be a success, but they really 
had no idea what would happen. And so basically they, they, they ran it opposite uh, a very popular soap opera uh, in Ireland and the UK called Coronation Street. And, of course, this was in <laughs> so many years ago, uh, as you say, 30 years ago, which was when a lot of houses didn't even have a television. And if they did have a television, they had one television. So there was murder in people's houses <laughs> because, you know, some of them wanted to watch the Coronation Street and the others wanted to watch my television series. So actually, as they say, there's no such thing as bad publicity. So people started to ring into the uh, into RT and into the, t- the radio station saying, you know, there's there's all this kind of aggro in the house, can they not repeat the series? So they repeated the series immediately, put it on a prime time, and uh, because of all the arguments in people's houses. So it's another era, but when when there was only one television, there was certainly not... It was such a long time before any kind of uh, iPhones or anything like that. Well, talk about being in the right place at the right time. (laughs) I mean, in today's today's television landscape, (laughs) my goodness, if you, you know, you're lucky to get an appearance on someone else's show, much less... You know, have such of your a own popular show. cooking show. I know. And how well, did, people did, will think I'm out of the arc when I'm talking about a time when there was only a black oh, and white television yeah. in the house. Yeah. Well, in, mm. yeah, in Ireland because you yes. were a little, a little behind, a little behind. In, in, yes. the, in the television world. Yeah. Um, but how did, did it? Did someone, your a publisher or somebody, go looking for this program, or did they come to you and say, "Oh, you should be on television"? Um, well, do you know the reason why? RT originally did it was because they were getting a lot of criticism because they had no Irish person doing a television series. And they had a well-known brand of spices that they'd bought a series um, uh, about, and it was obviously outright marketing. And, um, in fact, uh, the person who initiated uh, the program originally had been had been on the switchboard in RTE one night when this program from a well-known spice company was on and and suddenly the the switchboard lit up with people ringing in and saying for goodness sake can you not find an Irish person to do a program rather than this overt um, you know, publicity for a, a spice program, a right. spice company. Right. And she sent a memo to the controller of programs next day. She told me the story herself and said, for goodness sake, would you get on to them down there in Ballymaloo and ask, is there anybody who would do a pilot? Surely with the cooking, Ballymaloo Cooking School already going and Myrtle at Ballymaloo House, between them there must be somebody who could do a, a series. And that's, then they contacted us and that's how it happened. And I remember when one day this letter came from RTE saying, would you like to do a pilot and I'd never seen a television camera in my life at that stage and I was looking at this letter thinking oh my god I can't do that I make such a fool of myself and I thought oh well maybe if I did it and then oh no I can't do it this went backwards and forwards and in the end I decided that it would be better to have a go even if it wasn't a great success rather than live with well what if and I always say that to people look have a go and you know it's experience even if it doesn't turn out to be exactly what you meant whatever it is you never know in your life what's a little thing that can change the course of the rest of your life well certainly it was fortuitous that you decided (laughs) to make a go at it because you were perfect for it and 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 it shows it shows in the sales of the books and it shows that your continued success on appearances and television. You have so many television appearances and filming and different videos on television. And the series of books, 17 books to your credit. <laughs> and now with your newest one, just reliving that time. 
Simply Delicious, a classic collection. You are a classic, Darina. <laughs> and thank you so much for sparing, spending your time to share all your stories with us. You are a natural storyteller. Beautiful. <laughs> well, Linda, it's great to get together again. Yes, thank you very is. much for yes. having me on And we'll do show. it again next time. It'll be from Ballymaloo. Oh, I good. promise you. Promise, okay, promise. I do. Okay. <laughs> and thank you for listening. This has been another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, good radio supported by you. For freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.